Welcome to the Life of the Mind podcast from Brookwood and Avalon Schools. I'm Sherry Walsh, Assistant Head of Brookwood. Today we are here with David Bowes, Chair of the Theology Department at Brookwood, talking about John Dewey and the Decline of American Education. That's a book by Henry T. Edmondson III. Hi, David. Hello. Glad you're here today. Yeah, good to be back. (laughs) Yeah, David's a regular. Um, So... You and I were at a graduation party early in June, as we, you know, as we do, when you approached me about doing a podcast about this book. Uh, I'm curious about when you first encountered this book and why you wanted to talk about it. Well, um, I'm going to revise the history there. I ah. told you I read this great book, Critiquing John Dewey, and you said, what is it called? When are we doing a podcast? What? Yep. That is the true history of this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Uh, so I encountered this book uh, through the Pints with Aquinas podcast by ah, Matt Frad. Okay. Subscribe on Patreon or something else. Um, and he had this educator on Steve Rummelsberg, and he was talking about the problems of modern education. And he said, if you want to understand the problems of modern education, you have to understand John Dewey. And, but the problem with understanding John Dewey is he wrote a lot of stuff. Yes. Like a, a, a very large amount and but Henry T. Edmondson III published this book which does a good kind of succinct job of presenting um, some of Dewey's overall educational thought right uh, by looking at a few of his books yeah and Edmondson also points out that um, even in in education classes you wouldn't sit down and read um, Dewey's over you would um, you would read maybe some selections or some excerpts but more than likely you would read about Dewey so you would always already get somebody else's overlaid impression about Dewey's contribution before you even start so here we are with an over with somebody else's impression of Dewey um, for right. us to talk about today. <laughs> so I mean, this is clearly uh, this book is clearly a critique of Dewey and uh, and what he has you know, what he has offered. Um, again, the title is John Dewey and the Decline of American Education, and then the subtitle is How the Patron Saint of Schools Has Corrupted Teaching and Learning. That's a little provocative. Oh, yeah. uh, so, um, so we know this is going to be a kind of critique. When I opened it up to read, I was surprised at um, how it was. Uh, it was more than a critique, really. Mm-hmm. Um, that it was. Um, it was very much uh, a, um, a um, what a denouncing of Dewey and um, and a repudiation that's the word I'm looking Mm -hmm. for a repudiation of Dewey and um, and there is some Edmondson also does make some positive argument about what he would like to see replace um, the Dewey education that we've all inherited in ways that we maybe don't even realize Mm -hmm. so I mean I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about um, some of the things that we've um, inherited from Dewey and again the book is from 2006 so um, it's written, you know, in with that, you know, at that moment um, when there's been some you know, educational reform in the 80s and the 90s, um, there's been no child left behind. Um, and there's and so that's sort of the context in which um, Edmondson is writing. And of course, a lot has happened since 2006 um, in our own education system. Um, and so it might be interesting to talk, I think, um, about Edmondson's um, sort of perspective and uh, what the goals of this book seem to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think if we want to look at like what Edmondson understands about Dewey's thought, I think that the first thing to understand about Dewey's thought is his um, anthropology. Yeah. And how his understanding of what a human is, um, I think, influences how a lot of classrooms are run and a lot of how a lot of how subjects are taught um, even if we don't realize it we could be teaching um, like the sciences or other class or mathematics or other classes in this kind of very materialistic way so for John yeah. like Dewey denies the existence of the soul Dewey denies like the spiritual reality right and he wants to like foster an education kind of on the scientific method mm-hmm. and and right as like the way of understanding reality right and that the um that the method becomes also the end so it's so two ideas i want to um to pick up from you there one is um the very first idea about what you know about human nature um 
Edmondson says, Dewey's idea of human nature is quite vague. One thing, however, is clear. For Dewey, human nature is not fixed. It can be changed and molded. Um, and so there's that idea of you know, what it means when human nature is up for grabs. Um, it's not a constant. Um, later, when he talks about his positive argument, he brings in various thinkers who begin with the notion that human nature is fixed. And then it makes sense to teach, oh, I don't know, ancient history, you know, things right, yes. that uh, <laughs> things that speak to, um, you know, what the human is in a more um, universal way. Right. Yeah. Um, and then what was your other idea? Uh, oh, materialism. Yeah. yeah. Materialism. And, oh, and that yeah. the um, that the scientific method is the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, too, he focuses a lot on um, pedagogy. So a method as an end as opposed to um, a means to get at content. For Dewey, it seems that the content doesn't really matter. Um, it's the method that matters. Um, and tr- and that's that, that shift away from content to skills, which is the most positive way I can say that, is, um, is what, what Dewey, I think, gives us. Um, it can also be um, a shift from specific canonical content to um you know sort of contemporary ideology mm-hmm. yeah yeah and, and also like you know he wants to remove a lot of the classical content from the classroom and he wants to kind yeah. Of, but yeah i think the, the focus on method because he, he he's very against um like memorization he's very right. against um tradition tra- tra- <laughs> very against tradition very against you know religion very against mm-hmm. uh kind of even moral teaching uh as like you know right. as and if we think about education you know um especially in like the latin word for it as like to draw out of or to right draw from. it implies and, that something's there yeah and and it, you know education as kind of the way of ordering ourselves to the good mm-hmm. and and coming to know the good coming to appreciate it and work towards it with with dewey you kind of have that loss there's not really that um there's the emphasis on virtue mm-hmm. and the emphasis on forming virtue, like every kind of study, every discipline being ordered towards the intellectual and moral virtues is absent. Right. Um, but I think another... Because it's, it's, it's actually aimed towards social reform, right? right. What Dewey mm-hmm. is interested in is social reform. And if there's a problem, like if a problem is discovered with his method then the reform has to be reformed. It can't be that we go back to tradition, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. And, and Edmondson talks about that explicitly, that um, that it's that we, we're in a place of kind of perpetual reform, mm-hmm. um, that going back to a kind of tradition isn't, isn't on the table for him at all. Yeah. yeah, and if you think about it, that's kind of the, in a way, the genius of his, his kind of principles that he's starting with of, the scientific method as the basis for everything because it's like oh if this doesn't work just try a new experiment just try a new experiment just right. try a new experiment and and Edmondson brings up the great point um, like okay this would be fine if like the test subjects were not human beings but right. when your test subjects are children uh, and you're like oh well let's try this educational system what's the worst that could happen right uh, Right. Well, <laughs> well, right. I mean, when you think about, I mean, this happens all the time in schools. When you think about, um, you know, oh, it's just one year. We'll try this. Well, it's you know, it's yeah. um, it's Sally's third grade year, and mm-hmm. that's important. You know, right. it's um, so. I mean, in the life of in the life of a school or institution or reform, mm-hmm. um, it's an experiment or you know something to try. But it, the there's too much at stake. To be, yeah. you know, messing around with. I mean, we, I think we all experienced that during COVID, right? Yeah. Where, I mean, suddenly we have um, students who. I mean, in, in the case of our schools, um, students didn't miss a lot, um, but certainly the few students who stayed out um, for various reasons during the year that we went back. Um, I mean, those students had trouble, um, yeah. and in trying to um, try uh, when. So I mean, missing a year of school is a real problem for um you know for students yeah yeah and and then having especially when you think of like having the way in which because yeah like you said dewey's interested in methods so the way in which you educate but if 
children are all of a sudden getting different methods all the time. Right. How in the world are they supposed to receive any content? Right. <laughs> like they don't even know. Like they're kind constantly getting flipped around and changed. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And I think we've seen some of that with, um, I mean, it, it, as we look at the various reforms over time, um, where and the teachers, of course, um, are, especially public school teachers, are very frustrated uh, with you know here's this idea, oh here's that idea, and um, and they don't want to get too invested or spend too much time um, learning about an idea because soon enough they'll have to learn a different idea, yeah. and so that's I mean that's a problem with with that that kind of um, worldview. But at the same time, I feel a little bit of sympathy for people trying to make things better. Yeah. At the same time, there needs to, I mean, it seems, it seems like all of this um, cries out for balance, right? I mean, again, mm-hmm. I think that pedagogy is important, um, and I think that we should pay attention to it, and I think that we should try different things to see, like, um, to see how a certain kind of discussion goes, or mm-hmm. a certain kind of project goes, or something like that. Um, but when pedagogy becomes everything, um, then it's you know then it's it's messing with um what we're trying to do and i think too that for dewey the goal of education is social reform for us um, as you as you pointed out it has to do with um the ordering of the self toward the good Mm -hmm. and that that difference is critical yeah i I think so much of it goes back to like it all goes back to a flawed anthropology where this is something I see in my students a lot when we talk about you know teaching morality especially when we talk about like the good life and doing the right thing mm-hmm. and um, they always want to talk about how to like you know get society to act right mm-hmm. or get society to do the right thing mm-hmm. and well you can't control what anyone else does the only person right. you can control is yourself so, you know, and it's, you know, my, one of my favorite lines from Mother Teresa is, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. Yeah. It's like, yeah, like, you want to, you, like, don't try and force others to change. Work on changing yourself. Right. And a good, edu- and that's why, you know, there is this focus on the individual, um, like, individual improvement is not because we want people to be selfish right because we want people to be good right and, and of course i hear behind your words the book yeah. uh, where you have um, the idea is that um, that for dewey mm-hmm. the focus is not on the individual but on the public mm-hmm. um that that word comes up a lot and it's about um and the the criticism of religion is that it's too inward looking and um, and is about the individual. So that's I mean, so the critique. So Dewey's critique is that it makes people selfish or self-absorbed or overly individualistic. Um, and I think that in America, at the end of the nineteenth century, like you see some of that. Like mm-hmm. you see, like that's not a completely baseless statement to make. But um, focusing everything in um, on the public and on social yeah. reform and on structures in society. Um, you you run into a lot of problems, and also taking these ideas to their logical extremes, you end up with again that kind of worldview where uh, there's no personal responsibility because right. everything is about environment and everything is about um, the the structures that have given rise to whatever you know bad behavior has occurred, right? Yeah, yeah, and and yeah, and all of that you can trace back to this this um this molding of kind of like molding of just material beings to yeah. do the will of the reformers. Mm-hmm. And what, what's actually interesting, you talk about the selfishness of the uh, end of the 19th century and all that influence, the big kind of people who were putting people in place to further Dewey's reforms were the millionaires. Mm-hmm. It was the very wealthy elites yeah. who had profited off of a materialistic worldview mm-hmm. and kind of like, oh yeah, this is kind of a way to, um, this wasn't in the book, but this is kind of a way to ensure that the uh, people going through education um, don't really think for themselves. Right. Don't really, right. you know, aren't really examining their life, aren't really examining the mm-hmm. good, but instead are just becoming utilitarian means to further production right right to to further the ends to further their mm-hmm. ends right? yeah. yeah and so you have yeah. that as um so people become useful in that mm-hmm. way yeah right yeah, yeah. 
I mean, I think that um, thinking a little bit too about um, what Dewey has to say about content mm-hmm. and um, the idea about you know reading for itself is um, is discouraged that you know that books there doesn't need to be a focus on reading in schools um, or even um, teaching of books because um, they'll have to read anyway like it'll come up anyway mm-hmm. um, and so it's it's not it's not that important um, the idea of memorizing as uncreative um, again because it's I think because it's a depositing of, of the tradition. Yeah. Um, and sort of those those kinds of ideas, and that it's the role of the teacher to create an environment. All the learning is hands on, and um, and the idea is to participate in the process, right? Mm. Yeah. Which again just reduces everything to the material aspect. Like if you're everything is hands on, everything is experimental or experiential, mm-hmm. but you're not engaging ideals or universals, right? Um, you're just you're kind of living in the world of particulars yeah and prudence all of us like he talks about prudence practical wisdom mm-hmm. and you can't really have practical wisdom if you don't have principles and universals and but like really reading is where we encounter the universals it's really where we encounter um these abstract principles and then in, in history you know seeing the figures and how they live in literature seeing these stories mm-hmm. that are just like experience like in a way, we're experiencing reality through someone's vision, through some, through through a tale, sure. through a legend, and then we're able to see these universal principles in practice, mm. and we can actually learn from them. But right. in Dewey's world, that's just done away with. Right, right, and like with literature, in a safe way, mm-hmm. you get to see, you know, what are the consequences of certain actions, mm-hmm. uh, or um, you know, what, or you get to see someone outside of your own experience, mm-hmm. and um, and participate and participate in that in different ways so that um that that kind of idea that sort of play of um reading in order to be in touch with you know a more universal idea uh, makes sense and then thinking too about um i mean i think a little bit about the shift in english education recently um especially by the college board to very contemporary texts mm. um, and um, you know, very accessible, very contemporary, fairly high interest um, texts as opposed to these you know these older texts that we um, understand have um, have given us a kind of complex reading experience, um, a kind of view of um, I'm gonna say complex again psychology. Um, and um, and ultimately the kind of promulgation of values and virtues. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, not like in a um, particularly like overtly didactic mm-hmm. way, but with the way that the stories play out, um, you have a sense of of how I don't know how relationships work and how um, and what it is to be a person and you know and those yeah. kinds of things in a much richer way. Um, the focus on the contemporary seems to me like it um, it results in a, a lot of wasted time, right? Looking yeah. at, um, you know, looking at stories that are more ephemeral or that are more superficial, um, taking away from us the opportunity to really dig in and see um, in, a, in a richer way how, how ideas play out. Yeah, and also like it becomes again, but it's you know, it's hard to adopt the Odyssey to social reform, you know, in, in a way. Like, well, I mean, but I mean, you can easily okay. So if you want to adopt the Odyssey for social reform, I mean, certainly. So we talk about you know the journey. We talk mm-hmm. about going home. We talk about family. Uh, we talk about the you know the adventure and the things that happen on the adventure. Mm-hmm. The adventure we didn't ask for, right? Mm-hmm. And the life that the fate that isn't our you know that is yeah. isn't our choice. It's our fate, right? Mm-hmm. And what we do in light of of um, what we encounter. We learn about loyalty. So all of those kinds of things are there so in terms of social reform I mean I guess you end up with what you end up with I mean people taking care of each other you've Mm -hmm. got Telemachus going out to look for Odysseus you've got um, Penelope staving off the suitors Mm -hmm. 
But yeah, and and uh, and the the sailors, um, when they're mischievous, they get into trouble. So when they're not loyal, they they get into trouble. And when they're loyal mm-hmm. to a just authority, things go well. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, it's true. Yeah, that, there's too much going on. It's too. It's too. It's right. too human. It's like it's too messy. Right. <laughs> right. And so and so rather than having it as something that, um, in a more didactic way, um, tells us. Um, I don't know what, what kind of social reform, like what what kind of economic system we should have. Yeah. Or, um, I mean, certainly the um, the Odyssey talks a lot about the other, right? Running mm-hmm. into um, to to different people in different places. Yeah. I mean, Xenia is all about hospitality to yeah. the other, right? Uh, so that there's some social reform possibility <laughs> there, like when you encounter people different from yourself. Um, I don't know, and sort of like, are there common societal values that hold? This mm. seems like a digression. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> uh, but the, I'm just thinking about like, I mean, how? I mean, how would you would you do that? I guess you wouldn't. Your point is that you wouldn't, or, and, it, would, or it would be just so difficult to. Uh-huh. And if you tried to, it, you would it would ruin the story because mm-hmm. it's it's you know, and I, I would think like a contemporary author that you also can't you know twist into social reform would right. be like Flannery O'Connor. Like, because the whole point of her is that you, the author, are mm-hmm. identifying with someone who you think is the good guy in the story. Right. <laughs> but then you realize, oh, this person's not that good. Mm-hmm. Oh, I need to change. <laughs> like, right. You know, like that's, that's O'Connor's genius. It's, it's not like, oh, yeah, you have these clear bad guys and these clear good guys. And mm-hmm. So because you know, it lives in a place of greater openness. Yeah. It lives in a place of greater moral. I mean, in the end, the Flannery O'Connor story is not morally ambiguous. Mm-hmm. But there is in play a kind of moral ambiguity that doesn't lend itself to teaching people how to be a certain kind of citizen. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, you can't, yeah, you can't take O'Connor and, you know, use it to push any type what you know whatever type of agenda you want right you mm-hmm. just you can't and i think that's the mark of good literature and the reason why we read good literature is because it's it helps us experience something within ourselves and no matter what who it is no matter where it is no matter the context mm-hmm. it's going to reveal if we let it it'll reveal something about ourselves and sure. about the world at large and right. how to experience reality right Properly. Yeah, a lot of times I talk about literature as a window mm-hmm. to others, and then literature also as a window, or sorry, as a mirror to ourselves. Mm-hmm. So um, we learn more about ourselves, and we also learn about the the larger world. Um, and those goals are much more individual yeah. than um, than the kinds of, of texts that um, that one would encounter, right? The kinds mm-hmm. of projects that one would mm-hmm. encounter in um, in a in a Dewey kind of system, yeah, yeah. And, it, yeah, and I think that also goes back to history too, and like um, understanding like why Dewey isn't the biggest fan of studying history, right? Um, because history also does that, where it forces us to look at human life mm-hmm. uh, and the messiness of human life, mm-hmm. and how not everyone thought about reality the way we think about reality, yeah. But also, you can see parallels in how they justified certain things, and then we can look at ourselves and be like, okay, are we really so different? And again, it goes back to, well, if human nature is fixed, right, right. <laughs> we're right. not so different. Like, I like to joke that, um, you know, parroting the professor from the Narnia series, it's all in Plato. <laughs> you know, like so many of the problems we're dealing with now, Plato addressed, you know, like right. 2,400 years ago. <laughs> right, right. And so, I mean, that, and so that is, is sort of, it makes us laugh because it's, um, it's both unexpected and um, true, mm-hmm. right? And so there's that, um, I mean, there is that idea that bothering to learn history isn't, I mean, and of course, for younger students, there's a lot of, you know, memorizing of mm-hmm. places and dates and that sort of stuff. But learning more about kind of the currents of history, the issues that come up in history, those kinds of things, um, they assu- it, those things assume a kind of universal human nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also assume that tradition has something to teach us, mm-hmm. that the people who lived in the past are enough like us that we can learn from them. I don't know. I mean, there always seems to be a, um, a greater value to what we're learning, I guess, when we can see ourselves as something, as part of something larger than just us, right? Mm-hmm. And so that larger tradition is, um, it provides a kind of 
background and support for whatever it is that we, we might want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But I, I do want to talk a little bit about the scientific method. Yes, do and, that. And Dewey, because I think this actually gets at the core of like the big issue in modern education um, that I think, again, we don't realize we've kind of imbibed it as like a culture at large because I think you know you could you know people listening to this you know associated with Brookwood and Avalon might say like okay this is like we're not infected by Deweyism right and um, well, in, I mean, in a lot I, of ways we're not I mean I would admit <laughs> I would admit to it though in yeah. terms of I mean like my own training is in more progressive mm-hmm. um, independent schools um, where um, I really believed and believe that, um, you know, that interesting pedagogy and hands-on projects are often the best way to get at ideas. I don't think that my students have to discover every single thing, mm-hmm. um, but I do try to run my classes based on a kind of balance of the material itself, um, a, a sort of straightforward presentation or discussion of mm-hmm. the material, and projects or um, really kind of hands-on Mm-hmm. pieces that um, that cause us to slow down and kind of deepen particular points mm-hmm. and make more memorable for the students those things. I mean, those ideas are, I think they're from Dewey, um, but they're, but I hope that they don't reflect a larger Deweyism. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, but I do think that the um, that emphasis on a more student centered mm-hmm. within boundaries, right? Um, class can be um i think that can be very valuable and so i don't know but you want to talk about scientific method i think that is like that's i want to go back to like his principle and and like how he because that's like a kind of like a side uh, like a tangential thing of dewey's approach which is not like at the root and the scientific method um and how i think it, it, it 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 is fundamentally flawed to approach reality through the lens of the scientific method. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to explain what I mean by that. And I think it goes back to Aristotle's you know, famous line, um, philosophy begins in wonder. Okay. And the scientific method, and I think it's really good for mm-hmm. scientists to, you know, in the natural sciences to use the scientific method. I'm not saying the scientific method is terrible and bad and we need to jettison it. Right. Because the scientific method, I think, does flow out of a proper worldview mm-hmm. but if it becomes the kind of set like beginning of reality like the way in which we experience reality right. i mean it's the difference um, between science and scientism yeah. right yeah. but but so the scientific method begins in doubt mm-hmm. right like you you sure you're, it begins in whereas authentic learning begins in wonder mm-hmm. and i think when you approach hmm. every subject and you see it i think and i think we do do this unintentionally in education, I think all a lot of modern education has taught our students to doubt instead of teaching our students to wonder. So, how does that play out? I think it, it, it plays out especially in in um, in kind of being needed to prove something is real, right? Okay. In, in, in like, okay, we need to prove this. We need to like. You know, and, and proof not in the sense of, okay, we have these principles and these principles, let's logically deduce a conclusion. But like, you need to prove to me that what you are saying is true. Um, instead of saying, instead of coming at this from, okay, there's something here. Mm-hmm. There's something here is good and beautiful. And I wanna discover more about it. I wanna okay. understand what this thing is. And then using questions to, to go deeper into this already approached reality. And so you're saying that maybe initially the mm-hmm. scientific method was founded with an idea like that, right? I mean, because you, you begin by identifying, you know, the main mm-hmm. question that you wish to explore, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, and I don't know why that would have to begin in doubt and not wonder. Well, I think it's 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 maybe not the scientific method as it was originally construed, but the scientific method definitely post Descartes. Um, so Descartes begins all not like Descartes and modern philosophy approach. Um, philosophy and doubt, mm-hmm. right? They, they, you know, you deny self-evident truths, you deny first principles, and you say, okay, we have to prove these first principles. Sure. Okay. So this right. this idea that there's no mm-hmm. place to essentialize, and that yeah. you have to keep going back. Yeah, and I th- I think we see that um, 
implicitly in how we like we all I think have been taught that way of thinking um, it's kind of not necessarily like deliberately like you need to question everything but we kind of just are or you need to doubt that, that what this person is saying is true but I think it's just in the air we breathe it's something that we don't realize we're doing mm-hmm. but it's so influenced our culture and our way of experiencing one another yeah um, I mean I think in America too where we don't want to um, we want to acknowledge that we're a pluralistic society mm-hmm. we don't want to assume that somebody else believes what we believe mm-hmm. and so we begin in some place where we're more tentative mm-hmm. right I mean I think that that's I think and that seems to be something that has been dominant since maybe the 1960s since Derrida right mm-hmm. um, this this idea that um I mean, this idea of sort of an anti-foundationalist epistemology where you have, there's not a floor. There's not a floor for you to stand on. And so you have to keep on trying to um, to figure out, like, on what basis. Or you can um, posit your ideas in a kind of tentative way. So if we, you know, if we accept this, for me, it's mm-hmm. like this, right? Um, or there's, there's some kind of, so there's some kind of qualification that makes a truth not universal. Uh, or there's some kind of... Um, continual like floor dropping out Mm -hmm. as you as you talk and think yeah 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 i think it's it it just you know if you think about your your education or you think about you know there is a fundamental shift that happens in kids at some point Mm -hmm. where they lose their sense of wonder okay you know um not all kids right Mm -hmm. not you know speaking but there is something that happens in and it's weird that it happens and Mm -hmm. Like, I get it if you're old and you become cynical and you just, like, don't think anyone's good anymore. But when kids become, like, when kids have this kind of doubtfulness to them, this kind of, like, you know, um, way of, like, this this needs, this needs statement needs to be demonstrated to me to be true. Like, this kind sure. of rejection of belief. Yeah. I mean, that's a rejection um, of authority, yeah, I think. Yeah. Because, I mean, isn't that, but I think that we would think of that as, as part of... Um, part of individuation mm-hmm. as as a child grows up there's this kind of this realization that this person i thought was the authority doesn't know everything and then i have to question everything mm-hmm. and you have to demonstrate this and you have to demonstrate that and i'm not making any assumptions here um, i mean how is that a dewey idea well i think it, it's because it's because the scientific method says right i have this hypothesis I don't know if it's true or not, so I'm going to do this experiment to find out if it's true or not. Mm-hmm. So I'm not supposing something is true. Right. I'm supposing, like, I, I'm beginning by, like, doubting the veracity of reality. So you make the statement, and then mm-hmm. you doubt it. Right, so you, so yeah. you, my hypothesis is this, mm-hmm. and I'm going to test my hypothesis yeah. by doing this experiment. Yeah, and I, well, I think it's, like, the scientific method wedded with a, a Cartesian view of, uh, a Cartesian metaphysics. Mm-hmm. Because if you have the scientific method in, like, you know, uh, perennial Thomistic Aristotelian metaphysics where it was birthed um, you have right okay this is crazy wonder what happens if I do this I think it's going to be this let me find out right. so you're, you're seeking to like explore more and know more mm-hmm. whereas I think in, in, in modern ways in which we view the scientific method you're, you're beginning in doubt like you're, you're beginning in kind of this okay. doubtfulness and I think it goes mm-hmm. back to um this also ends up in relationships with with people Mm -hmm. right like um if i if i the first time i meet you i'm not you know begin and it goes back to what is a human um if i recognize that a human is you know and in in the image of god then any person i meet i'm going to be like wow there's someone beautiful here there's someone worthwhile here there's Mm -hmm. someone good here there's someone i need to experience here sure and i'm going to begin my conversation with you by saying this are, this person is good yeah and, and i think we know people who do yeah. that yeah oh yeah yeah this person is trustworthy this mm-hmm. person is worthwhile um and we're going to begin kind of together getting at truth mm-hmm. but i think if we begin if we say that the scientific method is the foundation of all knowing mm-hmm. um that becomes an obstacle like that 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 beginning or you know that beginning are just our like discovery of Reality mm-hmm. is going to be fundamentally different than if our, than if we say uh, the experience of being uh, is the foundation of all, of learning. Mm-hmm. Like simply encountering being, encountering reality, 
and being being true mm-hmm. and being being good. Uh-huh. You know, and like recognizing that being truth and goodness are really the same. There's not a real distinction between being true and good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and starting from that, which I think like children implicitly have, like children implicitly recognize the transcendental attributes. Sure. You know, um, and proper education will further that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we want that, but we we as a society are in this Cartesian way of thinking mm-hmm. that at some point we begin to start doubting. And I see it in um, the way in which we use the term belief, um, the way in which we use like the, the ways like you know the, the fact opinion distinction um, instead of like saying like, uh, because like that, the fact opinion distinction would have made no sense to like Plato or the classical thinkers. Okay. Because if you think about like what what it means, right? Well, opinion can be like anything that's not an objective empirical reality. Okay. Is my understanding of how it's typically talked about? Sure. Yeah. If I remember going through these worksheets, yes. right? Yes, I remember the worksheets. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's like you know, um, but it's really there's the truth. And then there is um, how we come to know the truth. Mm-hmm. And we can know it through, like, reason deduction. Sure. We can know it through a judgment based on the evidence we have. Right. And we can know it through assenting to someone's testimony about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it would be, you know, and that's why Plato talks about how belief is halfway between opinion and, and knowledge. Okay. Because, like, knowledge would be, like, I know it for myself. I've mm-hmm. arrived at it. I've studied the object. Um, yeah. I've grasped the truth. Opinion is, like, a judgment claim I make. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't... I don't actually know the essence of the thing. Right. And then belief would be, I don't know the thing personally, but you know it, and you've mm-hmm. told me about it, and okay. I trust you. Yeah. And I assent. I say, oh, okay, Sherry Walsh has said this is true. Mm-hmm. It must be true. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like coming at that, I think, I think it's, I don't know, maybe I'm like pulling too far, but it seems to me like beginning in the scientific method leads us to have this way of thinking about reality as fact or opinion. Okay. Whereas that isn't a helpful way to think about knowledge. Okay. I mean, I think too about, um, about Plato's, um, like the ladder of love, right? Where mm-hmm. you have these, um, these, or the hierarchy of knowledge, mm-hmm. where you have these elements um, placed in a hierarchy with the idea that a person develops from mm-hmm. one to the next. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that it speaks exactly to this point about fact and opinion, um, but it seems to suggest that, um, that, we, that we can we can arrive at greater knowledge through um through learning and as we mature as we get closer to that knowledge we can move from like um impressions to opinions to um kind of analysis and then ultimately to wisdom Mm -hmm. i don't know i mean it seems like there's a relationship there um although maybe a tangential one yeah yeah but yeah, I, th- I think that, you know, helping, uh, like reminding ourselves of kind of a a proper epistemology is really helpful in teaching children, mm-hmm. right? Because like if children are taught from a young age, fact versus opinion, and that's it. Right. Um, and if we're doing that, you know, um, and I think a lot of us just think that way because that's how we were brought up and we haven't actually thought about it, you know, and analyzed it. The only reason why I analyzed it was because I was teaching something and a student said, well, that's your opinion. And I was like, no, it's not. And I was talking to right. a friend of mine and he, you know, he was like, well, uh, uh, you know, opinions are judgments. Mm-hmm. You know, well, right. So it's, it's kind of false dichotomy, yeah, right? Yeah, it's a false I mean, dichotomy. And so, yeah. I mean, getting back to like Derrida, mm-hmm. that's, a, I mean, that's a, um, a binary that you can deconstruct. Yeah. And um, and find that it's actually that it's actually more nuanced, and that there's a kind of tension between those ideas. Yeah. I mean, that's something that you can do with it. Yeah. So as Dewey, um, as Edmondson talks about Dewey, and um, and re- and repudiates Dewey um, by exposing his ideas, by exposing Dewey's um, really apparently imprecise writing, that then leads to kind of projection onto the text of whatever reform is desired and kind of a Dewey flavor. Um, 
you end up with the current situation um, with social reform as a kind of ideal. And um, I mean, we can talk about the, um, the raising up of ideology as, um, as something that, um, that has become prominent in contemporary education. Um, you have, on the other hand, Edmondson gives a kind of positive argument. So he takes us first back to Thomas Jefferson mm-hmm. and talks about um, Jefferson as um, providing you know, some ideas of um, like two kinds of citizens, um, two tracks. Not everybody has to have the same education in order to be educated properly. Um, and Jefferson's idea that human nature is constant and the teaching of history, for example, is useful. So you get you know, those kinds of ideas. Um, Edmondson goes to Tolkien and to Newman to talk about um, the value of having a well-formed populace and um, the value of the individual and also this idea of um, use value um, and what we would want to do with that if education has to be useful, um, that it's actually useful to have you know, people who can think and right. to have uh, people who have, have a kind of understanding of what's happened in the past. And um, Edmondson also brings out Aristotle, Horace Mann, Benjamin Franklin, um, Franklin especially to talk about personal virtue um, and also the role of imitation. It's interesting because we think about Franklin as being a great innovator, um, but we also understand that Franklin um, is a great proponent of imitation as a way to learn things. Right. Um, and so we get that as kind of a constellation of authority that um, provides a kind of um, basis for a positive argument that's that's against Dewey. Um, I wasn't convinced by some of what um, what Edmondson was up to toward the end, mm-hmm. um, but it may. But I but I agree with his overall idea. Certainly that the um, yeah. that the that virtue education is important. The idea of a constant human nature is important to what we can do. And of course, our goal is um, the formation of students, children who are um, both well-informed in what's happened in civilization in the past um, and fully equipped to make kind of moral judgments themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, did you want to say anything about his positive argument? Well, I, I think, um, so I think his, his positive argument I liked a lot of, um, especially, well, I, I really liked his talk on a useful education, uh, which he, you know, um, and how... There's a C.S. Lewis quote that says, if you put first things first and second things second, you will get first things as well as the second things. But Mm. if you put second things first, you will neither get the second things nor the first things. Mm -hmm. And um, it reminds me of another quote from Anthony Esselin where he says, like, why shouldn't my plumber be able to quote Shakespeare? Right. And, like, we, we... Jefferson, you know, would say, okay, yes, there needs to be this kind of elitist track which I'm not completely opposed to, right? Like, you know, like, you, the people, our leaders should be more educated than us. Like, mm-hmm. there is something that we said. there's a different like, kind of education. There's a more practical yeah. education. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and you get that in all, all through yeah. history. You have yeah. people who talk about the talented 10th. You get, that's yeah. Du Bois, you know. <laughs> and you have others who, um, who are interested in having statesmen mm-hmm. as separate and educated in a different way from everybody yeah. else. Um, but um, I think that, you know, even in Jefferson's useful mm-hmm. education, you probably would have your plumber quoting Shakespeare. Oh yeah, absolutely. So I mean, so there's and, that. Yeah. And that's the thing where it's like, okay, they're going to have a more advanced education. And I disagree with like I think Jefferson's two track thing is, is problematic. The idea is that, yeah, um, especially given yeah. how problematic Jefferson is. Yeah. <laughs> but the idea that everyone, and this was a huge part of Jefferson Jefferson's thought, is that if you're really going to have a free democratic society then people need to be well-educated. And mm-hmm. that means they need to right. ha- they need to be ordered to, in the virtuous life. Um, and I think that, especially now when we talk about democracy is such a popular buzzword nowadays, um, and all of a sudden when you return, when people are given the ability to decide things and mm-hmm. for, for themselves, um, that is somehow an attack on democracy. Right. <laughs> like, that, like that, you know, like, it, that doesn't, but if your plumber can quote Shakespeare, uh, your plumber is going to be a much more um, well-rounded and, and much much more engaged citizen 
Right. And if your plumber only knows how to plumb. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, and certainly the exposure to... Um, to the kind of richness mm-hmm. and the um, and being open to like again all of the characters of Shakespeare yeah. and um, and and the language of Shakespeare all of those kinds of elements um, can only make you um, it gives you access to different tools to yeah. different um, not to extend the plumbing metaphor but it, it gives you um, access to um, to different ways of thinking mm-hmm. and different ways of understanding people yeah yeah so yeah um. I found some of Edmondson's um, positive argument like not super well written, okay. but I, I mean, for example, he he drops St. Augustine mm-hmm. um, on, on pages 98 and 99, uh, where he, uh, he talks about, uh, in his spiritual autobiography, St. Augustine ruefully wonders why he hated his youthful study of the Greek language. Perhaps if the language had, perhaps if the ancient language had been taught differently, he would have had one less reason for self-deprecation later in life. What? Mm. I mean, I, I know what, I understand that mm. Augustine does talk about the way he was taught. He does critique his own education. Mm. Uh, but I just, I mean, like that kind, I, I felt like it was a little name droppy. Mm. Uh, that it was kind of a superficial example. Um, and so he, you have, um, you know, various authorities kind of trotted out. Mm-hmm. Um, but not really used in, in a significant way. I mean, yeah. there are several people who I thought got kind of treated that way where there's, you know, um, where Edmondson, he's in, he's out. Yeah. And there's um, and there's the use of a little piece of an argument. Um, but I mean, but I mean, of course, overall, you have um, these alternatives that make a lot of sense. Maybe it's our job to write the positive argument. Maybe yeah. you're satisfied. I don't know. Well, I think I think part of the difficulty with the positive argument is um, again we're talking about. Um, mo- I mean, practical things are very helpful, but in order for the practical things to be proper, uh, we have to have the right vision. Mm-hmm. And I think the difficulty with proposing solutions um, when you're critiquing like Dewey's thought and stuff like that is like. Well, the, re- the way to do it first is to propose a vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then f- if you have that vision, it's like, okay, what's the best way? And that's where you can have innovation and you can see, sure. oh, well, these projects do this thing really well. Mm-hmm. Um, if, we ha- if we come at them from a right vision, they're right. going to be beautiful. You mm-hmm. know? It's, so it's not like, okay, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. Let's look at reality correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see truth for what it is. Let's see you know, existence for what it is. And let's figure out what's the best way to together experience this reality in a more deeper and more, you know, comprehensive way. Yeah. And I think, yeah, so I think like a lot of the practical suggestions teach history. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. (laughs) Yeah, that's something good. Right, right. And I think too, and part of this had me thinking about Dorothy Sayers Mm -hmm. and um, that essay that a lot of classical education people are interested in, that it's the lost tools of education. She gave this lecture after the Second World War, Mm -hmm. um, in part because she was worried about how susceptible the populace was to propaganda Mm -hmm. and how she felt like there was a real failure of being able to think about um, the messaging and being able to stand up in the face of evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, she goes back and ends up talking about the, the classical trivium as, um, as, a, as a, the, the method of medieval education that she found to be effective in, um, in providing people with, um, you know, the various experiences and tools that they need in order to be able to learn content. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, I think that there's there's something to be gained there. And I think that yep. people who are frustrated with Dewey go to, um, you know, classical education as we as we experience it now, Susan Weisbauer, mm-hmm. uh, Dorothy Sayers, like those kinds of, of sources. But then also um, thinking about virtue education and making sure that people do have a good foundation in um, ideas and values that we see. Um, through the study of history, through mm-hmm. the study of um, religion and um, and religious history, mm-hmm. and um, and through literature, so um, I mean I think that we end up um, unsurprisingly um, promoting what we believe in, mm-hmm. but I um, but I think that that this alternative is um, is really important, especially now as we see so much ideology 
on the surface of education. Edmondson yeah. also in one place says um, that we shouldn't be teaching ideology. I mean, like I, I agree with that, but I also um, think it's pretty easy to make a counter argument to that, yeah. to say that like, how do you, you know, how is it that what you're teaching is not ideology, right? Yeah. So you have um, you have those problems to deal with it when you, um, when you yourself are critiqued mm-hmm. as somebody who's trying to propose an alternative idea. But, um, but I think that overall, um, you know, that's the way to go yeah. with, um, with virtues, with a kind of um, canon. And again, with this idea that um, if human nature is fixed, mm-hmm. then we can, of course, learn, you know, learn truths that are universal and we can learn from the past. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And also, if human nature is fixed um, and, you know, we are created in the image of God in order towards, you know, heaven, um, that makes education like coming at it from that perspective uh, we have an experience of being that is radically different than kind of an ideological or kind of just like a societal shaping mm-hmm. right but it's saying they're like you child in front of me are loved right. by God you right. child in front of me um, are willed by God you child in front of me uh, are meant for glory mm-hmm. and it's my job to walk with you Right. And show you the glory that you are meant to have. Uh, and, and that's, you know, I think, again, that that means and that means educating them in the fullness of what humans have accomplished in the past. You know, learning from where we've fallen short of the glory of God, uh, looking to Christ and seeing all things in that lens of God is good. Creation is good. We are good. And continuing to experience and understand deeper the goodness in front of us is one of the greatest joys of this life. Thank you, David. <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks for coming. Uh, I think that... Well, actually, you came here because <laughs> we're recording this at my house. It's so. true. It's true. I don't know if, if listeners can hear um, the, the thumping and bumping of, um, of toddlers and babies, <laughs> the ambient toddlers and babies, nope. um, but um, they're, they're around, you know, learning the virtues. Yep. Yep. (laughs) But thanks very much. And um, thanks to everybody for listening. This has been episode nine of the Life of the Mind podcast from Brookwood and Avalon Schools. I'm Sherry Walsh with David Bowes. Our producer is Quentin Walsh and our theme music is by Fabian Tell. Views expressed are the participants own. (laughs) 